Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. I have two guests today, Dr. Hoet and Dr. Raglan Bignall. Whitney Rackney Bignall is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Psychology at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Dr. Raglan Bignall received a bachelor's in psychology from The Ohio State University and a doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Ariana Hoet is a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics in the Department of Pediatric Psychology and Neuropsychology at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She has a bachelor's in psychology from The Ohio State University and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Welcome to this episode, Whitney and Ariana. Thank you. Thank you. So let's jump right into the conversation and discussion of teaching and, and addressing topics that might be perceived as hard or complicated with our children. In the last two months, particularly after the death of George Floyd and the protests that followed and continue to take place throughout the country, Uh, we know that having these conversations on race and equity are extremely important, and we don't have to wait for the right age to do this. Since both of you are experts in pediatric psychology, talk to us about how parents can begin to acknowledge what's happening. You know, I think, you know, kids are so smart. Um, they are often very much cued into things that are happening all around them. And I think there's no right age. I think we just know the earlier, the better is when we should start having these conversations. And, you know, I think it is a very difficult conversation to have. And I think helping parents to become more comfortable, that could be through education, um, reading and listening to things so that they can kind of prep to have the conversation. But knowing the best way we can have the conversation is just to be honest use facts, um, talk about it in a developmentally appropriate way. Um, but they're probably hearing things um, and they have questions. And so being able to leave it open for them to ask as many questions, even if you don't know the answer, um, right, to say right. like, you know, hey, we can learn together and read together about this thing. But I think the key is to make sure that they know that you want to talk about it um, and that they don't need to be afraid to ask you questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to echo what Whitney said and then add, as a Latina, I think it is important for Latino families to also be having this conversation and know that this isn't just um, something that happens here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Latinos right. also have the same background as the United States when it comes to colonialism and, mm -hmm. and the slave trade. And, and so that makes us diverse too. We also have white Latinos, black Latinos, mixed Latinos. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm seeing out of this new, the recent civil rights movement that we're seeing following George Floyd's death is a lot of Afro Latinos are expressing that often mm -hmm. Latino spaces are less safe for them than mm -hmm. others. And so it, it really highlights how much as a community, as a Latino community, we have work to do becoming anti-racist racist, and, and noticing that 
it is happening for us too. Right. I remember I have children. I have two daughters. They're, they're teenagers now. But I remember uh, when they were little, you know, preschool age um, and, and how they noticed um, or described different people was never in terms of color uh, in, in a way. Right. So, for example, I remember, um, um, you know, talking about their little friends in preschool and, and, and I would say, well, what, what do they look like, you know, or something? Oh, oh, which one is, is the one that you're talking about? Oh, is the one with long hair or is the one, you know, that, so the markers that they use were never the ones that we as adults sometimes tend, tend to use. Right. Um, and that, and that's not to say that we should encourage colorblind, right. To be colorblind. Um, because uh, different communities' experiences uh, will be different precisely because they're members of the Black community, Latino community, Indigenous community, et cetera, right? But we do have an opportunity, I think, when, when, with young kids because there is this, you know, bla- uh, blank canvas, right? And, and we get to teach um, language that's appropriate um, in that they can, that becomes normal and part of the sort of family dynamics, family conversation and modeling to me, I mean, as a parent, and I'm just talking as a parent, um, that I know that the importance or, or the impact that modeling language, modeling behavior does for, for our, for our young children. Can you comment on that? I definitely think that, you know, actions are, the best way for us to truly share with our children what's to be expected because words they have a they have some impact but they're watching us all the time mm-hmm. they're seeing how we respond i mean that's just what babies do they know if something's okay they have to reference us um that's just normal development and i think you know they are noticing differences especially you know preschoolers are they're they're so good at that they want to they want to understand their worlds and having them understand that difference is great. We should be celebrating those differences. And, and just because someone is different, I think we have to make sure we understand that just because someone, like not all tall people act the same, right? right. And just because someone is a part of a certain group, they might have certain characteristics, but we're all unique in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so the best thing we could do is listen to understand and, and model that, right? So that we don't make sure make sure that we're modeling that when we meet someone, just because they have a certain characteristic, we don't know a lot about them still. Um, we still have to kind of get to know them and Absolutely. learn about them. Right. Mm-hmm. I like the idea, right, that uh, what you say, not, just because they're different doesn't mean that there is something wrong with people, right? <laughs> different than ourselves, like tall people or people with long hair or people with no hair or, you know, things like that. And I, I, I mean, I think I, I, it was kind of like a social experiment for me with my own kids, right? <laughs> to hear them, how, to, how they describe people. And I was, to me, because um, um, they're both girls, um, it was very important to me to empower them with non-sexist language um, in attitudes and, and role, gender roles, right? That's specific uh, to like being um, maybe women um, in domestic spaces, you know, describing women as in domestic spaces. Um, also body image, right? I, I, I remember um, just um, having conversations uh, with uh, me, with my mom or growing up and hearing so much about body um, 
image that impacts, you know, girls. And so I, I wanted to make sure to never describe people as, you know, fat or skinny or things like that. Um, and, and I was very proud of that. <laughs> uh, going back, I wish um, I would have been even more intentional about building anti-racist language as well. Um, because again, um, like you said, Whitney, uh, kids react to how we react and they're noticing. And I remember a couple of times, and I can't remember specific the specific example, but I remember just reacting uh, on a situation a, a certain way and seeing my girls look at me and noticing that, right? Without even saying in my body language, my expression, I was teaching them something, either fear or, or whatever the case might have been. But I remember noticing how they were looking to me for clues on how to act or how to behave um, towards a person or towards a situation, etc. Um, do you see that happening? I don't know. Do, do you have conversations like this with with parent with other parents and about their kids? Yes, absolutely, all of the time, um, because of everything you both just said. Of modeling is how kids learn, right? And so, in mm-hmm. in any aspect of life, they're watching parents, and so. Um, I often talk to to parents about, for example, creating an environment at home where talking about emotions is normal, saying how you feel is normal, and then talking about how you cope with those emotions is normal. And it may feel weird as an adult to say out loud, I am angry, I'm going to go take a break, and I'm going to count to 10. But that's how they learn. And so if we apply those same ideas to talking about race and racism, it may feel weird as adults because we already know it. We've been exposed to it, um, Mm -hmm. but they don't. And so if we want an environment where they want to, they know that they can come and ask us questions and they can talk about it and they can bring up what they saw at school or something they heard then we have to start by talking about it too, letting them hear us have conversations with other adults or we're talking about what we see on TV. If we see something that is a stereotype or, or wrong, bringing it up, making it a part of, of your home environment can be really, really helpful. Right. I mean, that's important. Uh, what you just brought up media, right? How um, also we as parents have the power to, monitor what they see and what they consume. A lot of the shows uh, might not be what we want them uh, to, to view because they're maybe um, reinforcing certain stereotypes or, or using language that's, um, you know, oppressive or um, discriminates against a certain group or gender, you know, or, or the like. And, um, and and I can just speak with from from my experience. Those things were I was uh, in a way desensitized to some of those things until I had children, <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, well they can't watch that or like, can start paying attention and, and seeing things through the eyes of your young the young mm-hmm. people in your life and what really questioning and maybe like it's similar to what you just say, Ariana. Even even though you're you know, there's a show that uh, I don't think my I want my kids to watch, but I watch. Um, it might be because I already know some of the things that are maybe wrong with it. And I just kind of 
you know, move on from that, but our, but our young kids are not. Um, so I think, um, you know, having those conversations too about the impact that media has on our kids and, um, and how as parents, we, we, we can censor some of those things, you know, as young children, as we continue to teach, because, you know, allowing the media to teach our kids, it's, it's not a good choice. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, and his new children's book, uh, Anti-Racist Baby, and I have it right here. I just, I just got it. <laughs> um, and I don't have babies, but I have a lot of friends that are having babies right now. So, uh, so that's the gift <laughs> that I'm sending. Um, Dr. Kendi tells us that we are not born racist. Uh, this is a learned behavior or attitude and that we can unlearn such behaviors. So, that, so, so you know, things are not lost uh, if we haven't started yet. We always have an opportunity to do that, even as adults. Uh, can you share some practical ways to do this uh, with our own uh, young children? Yeah, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about modeling. And I think if there was like one big thing that I think would be the most like salient, the thing that I would want to parents to take away is like modeling that when they themselves see something unfair happening um, to address it in some way and to talk about it so that children learn that silence is not what we want. We want to be talking about things that we see that are unfair because that's really the only way things are going to change is when we start to talk about it and start to think about how to address it. Um, so modeling those things for kids, I think is really important and coming up with a plan. So like, you know, they might see something unfair. Um, what happens when that happens? Like, do you want them to talk to their teacher about it? Do you want them to talk to you about it? Like, family plan when they notice that something is unfair and what should they do? Like, and that might, you know, depend on the family, right? That might not be the same for every family, but talking about what a plan could be, I think would be really helpful. Um, the other thing I think is education is so important. So, you know, in our, in like we live in the United States, there's a lot of things that have happened in our history. Um, some of them are in history books and some of them are not. Um, but I think if we have education about those things, and there's lots of books out there for kids to talk about many different topics about many different cultures and, and different things that have happened and presenting that information so that they know, you know, about some of the societal things that have been put in place and how we can change them or why we will want to change them. Mm -hmm. um, and on their level, I think are all just practical ways of just either introducing our kids to it or, and also sharing with them that when they see something that's unfair or unjust, how they can talk about it or stop it if, if that's, if they're able. Right. Um, I like uh, what you said about having a plan, right? How that, that is key. Uh, we don't, we don't often think about, I mean, we need to have plans for ourselves too, right? Uh, how do we react or what, what can we do in certain situations? And nowadays I think we, um, we have to do that, right? Because, um, you know, this topic is, is everywhere. Um, and it affects, you know, when we talk about racism, it, it affects us in, in many different ways. Uh, and we're seeing, right, um, sort of the health disparities that are, that are being enhanced um, uh, because of uh, the current pandemic. Uh, but I want to, Ariana, do you have any other um, maybe uh, tips or practical advice on how to um, 
you know, uh, empower maybe parents to to discuss or to talk about um, inter, uh, how to be an anti-racist? I think one of the only things we haven't touched on yet is educating our own selves as parents, right? Um, again, we talked about making an environment where, where it's comfortable to talk about it. If, if it's something that you don't know or you don't feel comfortable with, your kids are going to notice that. <laughs> and so I think if, if parents are feeling really hesitant, that's okay. And, and the first step is then go out and read about it, watch a, a, a movie, listen to podcasts, um, or even learn along with your kids if they're if they're adolescent age. Um, so it's okay to not know. It's okay to say, let's look it up together. Mm-hmm. But definitely, I would say that that's the first step is becoming educated yourself. Right. And we talked about media, but um, uh, Whitney, you said you mentioned books and books are so important. Right. And I think there that's an opportunity also, Ariana, to learn together. Right. So reading to your child, uh, not only are you teaching them, but you're teaching yourself. Like <laughs> I when I read to my kids, I always asked a lot of questions and, and I, you know, I love uh, uh, when when they were young, I loved the picture books and noticing different things that the illustrator, you know, added to the, to the story and asking questions about that and pausing and, you know, um, and hearing too what my girls were learning and seeing that maybe I wasn't seeing, you know, through the eyes of, of, of their young minds. Uh, so yeah, books are so important, not only the media that we consume, but the books that we choose to for for ourselves and for our kids. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, I'm interested in your work, um, understanding and addressing the psychosocial and cultural factors that contribute to health and mental health disparities, because this social and cultural determinants have different outcomes for different populations. Um, and again, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and, and we can see this very clearly, both in the um, African-American community and the Latino community, too. We have some really um, numbers that, that are just you know sad and, and, and hard to see. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about this work that you do? Sure. I think... I'll be honest to say, like, when I think of health disparities work, you know, it's so multidimensional. There's so many factors that play a role in it. And so, you know, I think of there's like historical and policy context that contribute to some of the disparities. There's cultural factors. There's mistrust. There's implicit bias. um, There's social determinants like your ability to access certain levels of care or have certain basic needs met. So there's so many things that kind of contribute to like why we have certain health disparities. I think um, my research has kind of spanned a few of those. Like I think when I started graduate school, um, I was really just interested in like why people that look like me or other ethnic minorities weren't seeking mental health services as much or you know, they weren't really talking about it. It was one of those hush, mm-hmm. hush topics. And I was really curious to see like, what, you know, what did different groups think about what caused mental illness? And so I did like a qualitative study and then developed a measure and looked at kind of just beliefs and, you know, certain things that came out in that study was just 
that, you know, African-American population and the Latina X population that I had surveyed in my study, mm-hmm. they had more spiritual or non-Western ideas of what caused mental illness. And so their hope seeking was depended a little bit on that factor. And it got me to think like some of the conclusions I made from that is like the importance of our profession, partnering with different community groups that already have that trust because um, that's where they're going first anyway. And um, I think it's so important for us. We We are experts in mental health in our Western view. Um, but I do think that we can take the, the both of each perspective to help our patients meet those unmet needs that they currently have. Um, and so a lot of my other work has been about like, how do I partner with schools or how do I partner with churches who are already seeing our families? And how do I take that intervention there and make sure that it's culturally competent and relevant and adapted to that perspective, mm-hmm. but also has the research that I know of the things that I know work too. Um, how do I take it there? And how do we make it where parents actually want it? How do we make it so that it meets their needs? And so studying that, um, and so that's some of the work that I've done, but I will tell you like, there's so much more work that needs to be done because we have to build trust. And I think some of my like work and fellowship is thinking about like, what are some factors that we need to do to build some trust? Because there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And unfortunately, because of other things that have happened in the past, these communities aren't really wanting to do that kind of research. And so what we end up having is like, we know there's a problem, but we can't research it because we, we've messed up the trust. And so how do we build the trust so that we can have more studies to figure out what is working or what is needed specifically for the population? And those are things that I'm really interested in. Right. Um, so one of the things that, um, that you, well, you mentioned several things that I think, um, and in your work with the African-American community and the Latino community, there's a lot of things that they, that, that both communities shared, right? The, the trust the, or mistrust of um, institutions or um, authority figures that may, maybe have been, uh, have wronged them in some way. Um, but also this um, idea of, um, I was speaking with another friend about, um, and she deals um, some with uh, with uh, Latino patients with uh, mental health illnesses as well. And she talks about understanding, for example, their um, the importance of maybe a spiritual leader in in this community's life. So she's like, so when we talk about treatment of the Latino or the African American community why not think of it as a partnership, right? So you bring the mental health expert, uh, but then you also bring or allow the healer, the, the, ch- the shaman, the, the curandero to be present, right? Or to be part um, of this team to get this person well, right? Because, um, because that's part of um, how they understand, right? Uh, maybe complete wellness. Um, and, and when we come with just one approach, um, we might be missing, and we're and we lack the ability to build trust with the community as well, right? Um, but I, I also want to comment, right, and how um, obviously you said this. There's layers, right, and to what contributes to health disparities. Um, 
uh, one of them that I can think right away is the economic uh, financial disparities I and mean, access to to healthcare, access to insurance. Maybe a lot of the people that we're we're talking about or that are experiencing, um, you know, high rates of uh, of uh, uh, con- contagion, you know, COVID or deaths even, right? Um, maybe they lack access to to healthcare, to quality healthcare, uh, but they're also dealing with this. Um, added um, racial bias, I guess, against them. Uh, I don't know if you, just recently, maybe maybe a few weeks ago, um, a politician or uh, in Dayton, Ohio, um, and I forget what his uh, title is or was, because I think he was removed. Um, he mentioned something about, you know, when when the uh, um, the topic was brought up, the the African American community was experiencing, you know, uh, higher rates of um, COVID in their communities and deaths, and and he suggested that maybe the black community was not washing their hands properly or regularly, and so here is attaching um, a behavior to a race or to a group of people. Um, versus, you know, the lack of maybe health uh, care or information or trust, et cetera, right? And so to me, that's, that's you know, it's frustrating, but it's, it's also something that we need to talk about this, right? We need to, I mean, the fact that um, the phrase Chinese virus was, you know, uh, uh, brought up and, and, and a disease attached to a group or a race um, and how, and, and the, um, the consequences of that. I mean, and, and we're seeing like real consequences for the, for the Asian community and how they're being targeted um, and, um, and sometimes in violent ways. Um, so I don't know if you, if you have any comments about this, it, it really gets me fired up because, because I know um, that when people, I mean, the minute that something like this is spoken, um, it, ha- it can have this negative effect immediately and to our community, right? That using Chinese virus or using or suggesting that, um, you, you know, Latinos or African Americans um, are having a higher rate of COVID because of hygiene <laughs> practices, right? Um, so I don't know if you have any comments about this. For me, I think, sometimes I think for people, it's so much easier when you're not a part of a group to prescribe some kind of like behavior problem to the other group, right? It's their fault. But when it's happening to your group, then you're like, oh, there's some system problem. Then you're more likely to like actually see the system problem. Um, And I think sometimes, especially for the dominant group, it's hard to want to actually break down that there are systematic things that are putting this population more at risk. Um, And oftentimes we don't really recognize the system isn't working until that mm-hmm. system's not working for us. That's just right. kind of how it works. It's just a bias that we have. Um, and unfortunately, many of, you know, African Americans and other ethnic minorities, they're not, you know, able to work from home. They're actually, mm-hmm. you know, around a lot of people, they're at the grocery store. And unfortunately, that puts them at risk for mm-hmm. COVID as well as just living in this country where they're experiencing so much trauma that also affects their health. Um, and even if they wanted health care, their hours are such in such a way that sometimes our system doesn't align with when they can come in. So there's so many factors that sometimes make it harder 
for this population. And so I think the dominant group sometimes has to recognize and open their their eyes too to say like, hey, maybe there's some system things that we might want to change, but that can be hard, especially when that system's benefiting that group. Right, right. Yeah, because you have to give up some of your privileges, right? That's, that's what it means to disrupt the system. Okay. And it's a harder fix. Like, right, so right. it's not something where you could just blame this group and say, well, okay, well, it's their problem. Because if you blame the group, then, then it's just their fault. You might not have to fix it mm-hmm. versus it's a systems thing that has a failure that, hey, maybe we actually have to do hard things in order f- for it to get better. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Hoet, you are Venezuelan and often work with the Latino and Latina and Somali population. What have you learned about working with these two different populations here in, in Columbus, some who might be immigrants, in terms of talking about mental health or trauma associated with race and racism? A lot of what, what Whitney mentioned, right? Just seeing it more in, in the clinical mm-hmm. um, area mental health is just so incredibly stigmatized in immigrant communities Um, many families feel that if you're seeing a psychologist there's something wrong with you right Mm -hmm. and and other immigrant families also feel like family problems shouldn't be shared outside of the home i I hear that a lot from somali parents Mm -hmm. Um, they don't want to bring their kid because it's it's a home problem or as Whitney mentioned, it's being solved in the community. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, a lot of immigrants, they don't go to mental health clinics. And and that's why you have people like Whitney and I working in primary care clinics, because you're often taking your kid to the pediatrician for the well child visits. Mm -hmm. And and that's when those problems come up. That's when, when the parent may say, hey, my kid's throwing tantrums, they're not eating, they're not sleeping well. And we're there to, to help with that, introduce ourselves and show them what psychology really does. It's not like the movies. We're not putting people in straight jackets. Right. Um, we're there to grow with the kids and help the parents with all those developmental questions that they may have. Right. Um, and then in terms of, of your question about the trauma and, and racism, yes, of course. I mean, many of the kids I work with face it all the time, whether we're talking about these bigger overt problems, like for example, a lot of my Latino families are facing separation, deportation, Mm -hmm. um, or these systemic problems within the schools. A lot of children with learning disabilities don't have the supports they need. Um, They don't feel like they belong in the school. The parents can't advocate for them because of language barriers or just not understanding how the U.S. schools work. Um, And and it's especially highlighted right now with with the coronavirus. Some kids don't have access to the technology they need for home learning. The parents are working and they can't support them or the parents don't speak English and don't know where to even begin. And so it's it's been highlighted even more right now with all of this home learning and And I think one of the things I find to be sad is that for many of the kids, they don't see what's happening to them as racism. They internalize it and and they see it as it's me, right? I'm weird. I'm different. I'm not good enough. I don't belong. Um, And something I see 
with my patients. It's also something I lived myself. I, I went to high school here in Ohio. And it's not until now that I do the work that I do that I can look back and think, wow, that happened to me because I was an immigrant. That happened to me because I was a Latina. In the moment, I saw it as that's just some bullying or, or you know, it's me. Um, and so I think that's, that's what's sad. It, it comes up in session a lot, but they don't define it as racism. Maybe the parents do, but the kids themselves don't often see it that way. Yeah. And I wonder if um, also, I'm sure in working with children, you also include the parent in some way and, 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 and maybe techniques of how to identify and how to talk about that, right? Because I think um, kids could be re-traumatized when you don't acknowledge what's happened to them as something that is, you know, racist or racism towards them. Um, you know, I could see, I could see parents and maybe I've, I've heard parents that, you know, um, the kid is experiencing something that um, is clear, might be clearly um, racism, but the parent is like, oh, just, you know, you're tough. Just, you know, just live through it. Especially in, uh, at least I can talk for the Latino community. Oh, it's the sea macho y, y aguantese, right? Like <laughs> you can put up with it. You're, you're, you're strong, right? Instead of like acknowledging that this is wrong, right? Uh, and that that shouldn't happen. Um, so I imagine that that also happens um, as you counsel or as you work with, with children and parents. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or a lot of the parents have lived through trauma themselves, either at, in their home country, the immigration process that they went through. And so you hear that, like, you haven't been through anything, you're okay. You don't know what it, what true, you know, difficulties are. And so they kind of can compare what they've been through to the, the great life they're giving their kid here and, and minimize that lack of belonging that the kids may be feeling. And, and that's definitely that acculturation gap is definitely something that comes up in most of my, um, families that I work with. Right. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for all this, you know, uh, the conversation and, and, and how to move forward and with, with our children. Um, do you have any books that you recommend at all for any age, <laughs> uh, either for parents or for kids to begin looking into and learning together? Hmm. I put you on the spot. <laughs> I don't have a necessarily a book specific mm -hmm. that I'm thinking about. I know that there's a website, I think it's called the conscious kid. Mm -hmm. um, but what I like about that website, it has lots of books there. Mm -hmm. And I think I shared it with one of my colleagues and she's gotten a several one and they're like picking them to read during bedtime. So mm -hmm. I think um, I, I do really like that source for finding really good books, but I don't mm -hmm. have like one at the top of my brain. Right. But that's a good resource for parents. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, um, Barnes and Noble has a section of Spanish books mm -hmm. for kids. Um, so that's always a go-to. Um, I think again, for parents, for me in personal, what I'm choosing for, for my kid is more noticing who's on the cover, what kind of kids looking for diversity are there global stories. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of books about, powerful women and feminism right but then a lot of the times there's not there's no diversity within these books and so looking to make sure that 
women from all over the world are represented. Um, so that that's how I tend to look when I'm browsing for books. That's great. That's great. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share uh, or add to this conversation? I don't think so. Okay. Well, great. <laughs> uh, thank you so much uh, for, for this time and for talking to us about, you know, how to talk to kids about race and racism. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm -hmm.